Greetings, you're listening to podcast number 117 of Blast the Right. I'm your host, Jack Clark. Great to have you on board. Today, you'll hear three segments touching on women and children so hungry and desperate they eat cookies made of dirt. What's that got to do with you and me? Right-wingers so callous and vicious they blame victims of natural disasters for their own fate. And in a change of pace, some Campaign 08 strategy suggestions from yours truly. It's a multi-hued picture I'll paint for you. Let's get right into it. My sources for this segment are the Associated Press, the Miami Herald, the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, and JubileeUSA.org. Some pretty intense stuff to start off with here. I recently came across this Associated Press story whose headline is Poor Haitians Resort to Eating Dirt. Here are a few short excerpts. Port-au-Prince, Haiti. It was lunchtime in one of Haiti's worst slums, and Charlene Dumas was eating mud. With food prices rising, Haiti's poorest can't afford even a daily plate of rice, and some take desperate measures to fill their bellies. Charlene, 16 with a one-month-old son, has come to rely on a traditional Haitian remedy for hunger pains, cookies made of dried yellow dirt from the country's central plateau. In places like City Soleil, the Oceanside slum where Charlene shares a two-room house with her baby, five siblings, and two unemployed parents, cookies made of dirt, salt, and vegetable shortening have become a regular meal. About 80% of people in Haiti live on less than $2 a day, and a tiny elite controls the economy. End of excerpts. So maybe you're asking yourself, why are Haitians reduced to eating dirt? Why is the economy controlled by a tiny elite? Why can't the Haitian people put in power a government that'll ruin all their interests? To answer those questions, you have to look in the mirror and ask, what is our role, the role of the United States and other Western powers, in all this? To start off with, in 1915, the U.S. invaded Haiti and occupied the country for 19 years. Quote, the U.S. invasion came in the wake of President Woodrow Wilson's professed commitment to make the world safe for democracy. However, as soon as the Marines landed in Haiti, Wilson's administration remapped the country into police departments, shut down the press, installed a lame duck government, rewrote the Constitution to give foreigners landowning rights, took charge of Haiti's banks and customs, and instituted a system of compulsory labor for poor Haitians. Those who resisted the occupation were crushed among them a militant peasant-run group called Cacos. In 1919, U.S. Marines in blackface ambushed and killed the Cacos' leader, Charlemagne Peralt, mutilated his corpse, and displayed it in a public square for days. Close quote. Then later on, successive U.S. administrations supported the brutal Duvalier dictatorships, both of the father, Papa Doc, and the son, Baby Doc. There was a glimmer of hope in 1990 when Haitians in an internationally recognized democratic election chose a priest, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, as president. Aristide refused to follow our orders on how to rule. He actually wanted to spend money to help the starving, disease-ridden poor majority who had elected him. Right-wingers couldn't have any of that. So in 1991, the first Bush administration overthrew Aristide. Clinton put him back in power. 
Then in 2004, the second Bush, our beloved George W., overthrew Aristide once more. A Pentagon plane hustled him off to exile. Maybe all this history helps explain how Haiti's governments have been able to get away with ruling solely in the interests of a small elite. Maybe all this explains why Haiti's governments have felt free to do virtually nothing to help their citizens who are forced to eat dirt. And to make matters worse, U.S. and Western intervention in Haiti, as in other third world nations, has taken additional, equally damaging forms as well. In Podcast 56, I set out the four major ways the Western industrialized world, in other words, the former colonial powers by and large, continue to economically exploit the third world. If you haven't listened to Podcast 56, you should definitely make a mental note to yourself to listen to it. One of these means of exploitation is the international debt scam. First world banks, nations, and multilateral institutions have historically lent huge sums of money to corrupt third world dictators. This is even though the lenders absolutely know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that most of the funds won't be used to benefit the people of those nations. Quite the opposite. The funds are used to finance repression of the majority and to fatten the dictator's personal bank accounts. And who has to repay those loans? Not the dictators. The citizens of those countries, the majority of whom are poor, have to repay these loans, the principal plus interest, through their taxes. The result is that many dirt for poor countries are forced to spend far more on repaying the loans than on health care and education and other needs of their people. Julius Nyerere, former president of Tanzania, put it bluntly, asking, Must we starve our children to pay our debts? Apparently, yes. Haiti currently pays tens of millions of dollars a year in debt payments. Now, I know this picture isn't pretty. It would even be depressing if there were nothing you could do about it. But there is something you can do to help the situation. In fact, two things. First, quote, Representatives Maxine Waters, Democrat of California, and Spencer Backus, Republican of Alabama, are calling on their colleagues to sign their bipartisan letter to the Secretary of the Treasury, urging him to, one, expedite the cancellation of Haiti's debts to the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, and other multilateral financial institutions, and two, urge an immediate suspension of debt service payments from Haiti. Here's the other thing you can do. The week of February 25th to 29th is a call-in week to demand Congress pass the Jubilee Act for Responsible Lending and Expanded Debt Cancellation. In the House, it's Bill H.R. 2634. In the Senate, Bill S. 2166. The Jubilee Act would address not just Haiti, but the entire Third World. Just like Haiti, all over the Third World, impoverished nations are burdened by unsustainable debt incurred by dictators. These countries have to forego spending on food, health care, housing, and the like in order to repay wealthy nations and multilateral institutions that should never have lent the money to the dictators in the first place. Another good thing the Jubilee Act does is fight against vulture funds, speculators who buy up third world debt for a few pennies on the dollar and then demand repayment in full. After he heard my podcast 90 on vulture funds, even a right winger wrote in telling me these vulture funds were immoral. So please, 
Call your representative in the House and ask him or her to sign the Waters Backus letter to the Treasury Secretary about the Haitian debt. And also ask your representative and your two senators as well to support the more broad-scale Jubilee Act. The Congressional Switchboard is 202-224-3121. 202-224-3121. The operator there can tell you who your representatives are if you don't know their names. I've also put some relevant links to organizations promoting these initiatives on my podcast homepage. You can get even more detailed information there if you like. Right-wingers, even you guys would agree, I think, that people shouldn't have to eat dirt while a tiny elite hoards all of a country's wealth. So why don't even you right-wingers join in with us progressives here? Let's have a right-left alliance to get the invalid, immoral third-world debt canceled. Together, we can allow Charlene Dumas and her one-year-old son to graduate from a diet of dirt cookies to real food, the kind you and I enjoy every day without a second thought, the kind every human being is entitled to have. How about it, everyone? Please call Congress as soon as this podcast is over and add your voice to this essential call for economic justice. Your one-minute voting report. Thanks for all the new five-star reviews in iTunes. That gives Blast the Right a higher rating, more visibility, more subscribers, and more people hearing the progressive word. You also counter right-wing one-star sabotage reviews, like a recent one from Blue State Right Winger that read in part, People like Jack validate the now commonly accepted belief across the country that such woolly-headed progressive liberalism is intellectually lame, ideologically bankrupt, and completely impractical. The New Deal and the Great Society are so over. Deal with it, Jack. Your day is done. Wow, I didn't know all that. Over at Podcast Alley, they just fixed the voting last night, so if you want to, you can go over there and vote now for February. If you've asked what else you can do to help, how about going over to Podcast Pickle and checking off On My Playlist. If you want to help even further, please go to dig.com and say you dug the entire podcast. Thanks. My sources for this segment are MediaMatters.org, CommonDreams.org, and BrainyQuote.com. Remember when I played you Bill O'Reilly blessing us all with these words of compassionate wisdom for the victims of Hurricane Katrina? Every American kid should be required to watch videotape of the poor in New Orleans and see how they suffered because they couldn't get out of town. And then every teacher should tell the students, if you refuse to learn, if you refuse to work hard, if you become addicted, if you live a gangsta life, you will be poor and powerless just like many of those in New Orleans. Well, hang on to your hat. I recently heard another right-winger who makes O'Reilly sound almost statesmanlike. His name is Neil Bortz. Here are a few choice excerpts. I'll just let them play for a couple of minutes so you can let soak in the full flavor of this despicable man. I'm reading here about John Edwards. Oh, what a wimp. 
You know what he's going to do now? He's going to he's going to continue work with Habitat Humanity or for Humanity at the Volunteer Fueled Rebuilding Project at Musicians Village. Where's that? Oh yeah, uh, New Orleans. Is that New Orleans? I like this. Edwards' campaign will end the way it began 13 months ago with the candidate pitching in to rebuild lives in a city still ravaged by Hurricane Katrina. Edwards embraced New Orleans as a glaring symbol of what he described as a Washington that didn't hear the cries of the downtrodden. Cries of the downtrodden, my left butt cheek. That wasn't the cries of the downtrodden. That's the cries of the useless, the worthless. New Orleans was a welfare city, a city of parasites, a city of people who could not and had no desire to fend for themselves. You have a hurricane descending on them, and they sit on their fat asses and wait for somebody else to come rescue them. Somebody, it's somebody else's job to get me out of here. It's somebody else's job to save my life. Not mine. Send me a bus. Send me a limo. Send me a boat. Send me a helicopter. Send me a taxi. Send me something. But you certainly don't expect me to actually work to get myself out of this situation, do you? Haven't you been watching me for generations? I've never done anything to improve my own lot in life. I've never done anything to rescue myself. Why do you expect me to do that now just because a levee broke? And then Edward says, yes, it was Washington's problem. It was all Washington's problem. It was all George Bush's fault. You had a city of parasites and leeches, and that's George Bush's fault? When these Katrina so-called refugees were scattered about the country, it was just a glorified episode of putting out the garbage. Their entire lifestyle prior to Katrina was sitting around on their asses and waiting for checks. I am sick. I mean, here is this John Edwards character announcing, uh, uh, admitting to the world that he's a complete failure as a presidential candidate in New Orleans, and now he's going to go build Habitat for Humanity Homes. Well, isn't that just so sweet and warm and fuzzy? If he walked by here before he drives the next nail, I'll kiss him right on the mouth. But the, f the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, he's doing good works fine, but I am fed up with all with this this conventional wisdom that Katrina and the disaster that followed was George Bush's fault it was not the primary blame goes on the worthless parasites who lived in New Orleans who you couldn't even wipe themselves let alone get out of the way of the water when that levee broke as my elders would say hoy gavolt as i would say what a piece of work is Neil Bortz. You can go take a figurative shower now, a spiritual shower, as it were, to wash the moral filth that, listening to Bortz, can splatter all over someone's soul. Now, what do O'Reilly and Bortz have in common? Both, whether wrapped up in O'Reilly's fig leaf of a lesson to children, or nakedly stated in Bortz's thinly veiled racist rant, O'Reilly and Bortz are expressing the right-wing's underlying credo, which is actually a formal doctrine called social Darwinism.
social Darwinism posits that the rich are rich because they work hard and are moral. The poor are poor because they're lazy and immoral. They don't get educated, they don't work hard, they get addicted. All low-income workers who earn a poverty-level wage, no doubt, refuse to learn, refuse to work hard, become addicted, and live a gangster life, right, Bill? Condemnation of the poor, blaming them for their situation, is always a surefire crowd-pleaser among right-wingers. Let me tell you a bit more about social Darwinism, since it's so critical to understanding the right-wing mindset. Charles Darwin of the theory of evolution fame had nothing to do with it. The social Darwinism doctrine was developed by an English philosopher named Herbert Spencer 30 years after Darwin's book on the origin of species was published. Robert Reich was Bill Clinton's labor secretary and much more progressive than Bill Clinton and other Democratic Leadership Council Democrats on economic issues. Reich explained social Darwinism in words I can't improve upon. Quote, Extending Darwin into a realm Darwin never intended, Spencer and his followers saw society as a competitive struggle where only those with the strongest moral character should survive, or else the society would weaken. It was Spencer, not Darwin, who coined the phrase survival of the fittest. Social Darwinism thereby offered a perfect moral justification for America's Gilded Age, when robber barons controlled much of American industry, the gap between rich and poor turned into a chasm, urban slums festered, and politicians were bought off by the wealthy. It allowed John D. Rockefeller, for example, to claim that the fortune he accumulated through the giant Standard Oil Trust was, quote, merely a survival of the fittest, the working out of a law of nature and a law of God, close quote. Wright goes on to explain how social Darwinism is the moral philosophy underpinning the right-wing legislative agenda, quote, Social Darwinism gives a moral justification for rejecting social insurance and supporting tax cuts for the rich. Reich then quotes Robert Bork, Reagan's failed Supreme Court nominee, as saying, In America, says Robert Bork, the rich are overwhelmingly people, entrepreneurs, small businessmen, corporate executives, doctors, lawyers, etc., who have gained their higher incomes through intelligence, imagination, and hard work. Reich goes on, any transfer of wealth from rich to poor thereby undermines the nation's moral fiber. Allow the virtuous rich to keep more of their earnings and pay less in taxes, and they'll be even more virtuous. Give the non-virtuous poor food stamps, Medicaid, and what's left of welfare, and they'll fall into deeper moral torpor. Close quote. So it hurts the poor to help them, and helps the poor to take away what little help they receive. Ah, a philosophy to soothe the conscience of a greedy bastard if I ever heard one. You can check out podcast number 20 for a full treatment of this noxious social Darwinism philosophy. No one nailed the right wing better than John Kenneth Galbraith when he framed it thusly, quote, the modern conservative is engaged in one of man's oldest exercises in moral philosophy, that is, the search for a superior moral justification for selfishness, close quote. Yes, the search for a superior moral justification for selfishness. Next time a right-winger starts spouting social Darwinism nonsense at you, 
Tell him or her you're on to their game, that you don't buy social Darwinism as anything other than a lame excuse for the greedy to be greedy at everyone else's expense, to sleep soundly at night without a pang of conscience disturbing their pretty little heads. If we progressives can't wake up most right-wingers from their self-induced moral turpitude, we can at least point out to the rest of the world over and over again that such right-wing philosophy is nothing but moral turpitude, and may it soon be treated as such by the body politic, buried once and for all. So you wear the vestments of ill-gotten legacy, bankrolled by CEOs and died by Christian destiny. You give us empty words and flags to rally around, but the rest of it don't seem to trickle down. I've been getting email asking me about my take on the upcoming 08 election. If you're a long-time listener, you know that I haven't been in the habit of talking much about election strategies. But I do have two thoughts I want to share with you right now about the 08 election. My sources for this segment are JohnMcCain.com, The Washington Post, CNN.com, and The New York Times. John McCain has a reputation as a straight talker and as a moderate. An essential element to defeating him will be to deny McCain as many moderate and independent votes as possible. You can do that by redefining him. This is critical to get started on right now. So let's find one or more great nicknames for him. If anyone you're talking to starts in about McCain being a straight talker, you might ask them, which straight talking John McCain are you referring to? John on second thought, let's not provide a path to citizenship, McCain. Or perhaps, John, on second thought, let's make the Bush tax cuts for the rich permanent, McCain. Or maybe even, John, on second thought, let's not forbid waterboarding by the CIA, McCain. Now, if you're conversing with someone who says they see McCain as having moderate views, you can pose one or more of these queries. Which moderate John McCain are you referring to? John, we must overturn Roe v. Wade, McCain? Or how about John, I'll appoint Supreme Court justices like Roberts and Alito, McCain? Or maybe John, 100 years in Iraq, McCain, and his close relative, John Bamba Moran, McCain? I think you get my drift. In fact, let's have a contest. How about you send me in your favorite John so-and-so McCain nickname, and I'll share the best ones on a future podcast. Okay. The second point about the 08 election has to do with terrorism. You're going to hear a lot of, George Bush has kept us safe here at home for seven years. Republicans know how to protect us. And God forbid, there could well be a terrorist attack on U.S. soil between now and the election. In which case, Republicans will say, 
Only Bush could have kept us safe this long, and under Democrats, there would have been attacks sooner and will be more attacks if you elect them. Democrats can both refute the Bush's kept us safe claim and at the same time inoculate themselves against any terrorist attack that could take place between now and the election. How? I think it's not hard at all. Democrats should simply say, over and over and over again, that we haven't experienced any terrorist attacks on U.S. soil despite, not because of, George W. Bush. Despite, not because of. It's like a guy who drives by a tinder dry forest every day and flicks in a lit cigarette. The forest never ignites. And then the guy claims that his flicking in the lit cigarette every day prevented forest fires. There were, of course, no forest fires despite, not because of, what the guy did. The consensus of the U.S. government's own intelligence agencies is that the Iraq war, quote, has become a primary recruitment vehicle for violent Islamic extremists, motivating a new generation of potential terrorists around the world whose numbers may be increasing faster than the United States and its allies can reduce the threat, U.S. intelligence analysts have concluded. A 30-page National Intelligence Estimate, completed in April 2006, cites the centrality of the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the insurgency that has followed as the leading inspiration for new Islamic extremist networks and cells that are united by little more than an anti-Western agenda. It concludes that, rather than contributing to eventual victory in the global counterterrorism struggle, the situation in Iraq has worsened the U.S. position. Close quote. Other recent analyses by the government's own agencies conclude that Al-Qaeda is regaining strength in its ability to attack us, especially from its sanctuaries in Pakistan. Plus, as you may well know, the Bush administration has failed to secure our ports, adequately protect chemical plants, and has allowed to stand a host of other security shortcomings. World opinion, Muslim world opinion the most, has turned sharply against our nation, which has inflamed those susceptible to the terrorist call and failed to take adequate safeguards here at home. In other words, George W. Bush has been throwing the lit cigarette into the tinder dry woods and then been claiming his actions have prevented forest fires. I believe bin Laden and others of his ilk want a right-winger elected president in 08. Remember when bin Laden released that video right before the 04 election? Many political observers felt that by refocusing the attention of the American public on terrorism, that video shifted many votes to Bush and that that was bin Laden's intention. Bin Laden knows Bush has been, and McCain will be, great for continued recruiting for the Al-Qaeda terrorist network. Not just another video, but a pre-November terrorist attack could well be in bin Laden's plans. So if we do experience a terrorist attack on U.S. soil before the November elections, Democrats will need to have inoculated themselves beforehand, starting right now with the mantra that it's despite, not because of George Bush, that we haven't been hit. And then after any such attack, use the consistent follow-up line that it's because of George Bush's multiple failures in his war on terrorism that we were hit. I hope, of course, that the pre-November attack scenario doesn't happen and that my despite-not-because-of frame only has to apply to why we haven't been hit domestically since 9-11.
Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right. Tell ten friends. Go over to iTunes and write a five-star review for Blast the Right. Go to podcastpickle.com and put Blast the Right on your playlist. A special shout-out to all you Live 365 and Red Dragon 365 listeners. Great to have you on board. Why don't you come over to the podcast homepage, subscribe for free, and you can download and listen to any episode of the podcast anytime you want. And a welcome to listeners on a new station carrying Blast the Right, WETXLP, The Detour, the independent voice of Appalachia. Thanks to Neats and Kit from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, for help with this week's podcast. Music credits. The break music was L.A. Nightmare by 22 Caliber and Not the One Blues by Burnshee Thornside. The bumper music was Kill the Poor by Matthew Grimm and the Red Smear. We'll close with a little bit of Taking My Country Back by Honky Tonkers for Truth. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Your email continues to be excellent. Keep writing in as the spirit moves you. My address is rational at roadrunner.com. You can also call in and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also leave a message on Skype. My Skype name is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. Now you don't know my name, but you know who I am. I'm your everyday work hard, play hard, raise kids and pray hard, common man. And Lord knows I love this land. That's why I'm taking my country back. Son, you ain't been doing her right. Oh, I've been watching you. Don't like how you've been treating